might be hard to believe, but Easter is in three weeks, and so soon we're going to be celebrating Jesus' resurrection. We're going to celebrate that Jesus rose from the dead, and of course, on the surface, just that in itself is significant. The claim that someone died and came back to life after dying is a pretty astounding claim, and obviously it shakes many of the assumptions that we make in our Western kind of scientific or post-Christian culture. But Jesus' resurrection would not have been necessary without his death. And so as we're heading into Easter, we're going to be taking a break from our series in 1 Corinthians, and we're going to be talking about Jesus' death or the atonement. And so this week, we're going to be talking about the atonement, and then next week we have a missionary, then the week after that on Palm Sunday, Pastor Franco is going to be preaching a follow-up message on the application of the atonement, what Jesus has done for us through the cross. He's going to be preaching about how that looks in our lives. You're not going to want to miss that. And this morning, it's going to be pretty densely packed, okay? And so if you've got a pen and a piece of paper, you might want to get that out because there could be some things you want to write down just to help you understand some terms maybe you've read in the Bible or you've read in books that are going to help you to understand what is it that Jesus did for us. So we're going to start with that. What is the atonement? The atonement can be broken down as a word. It it is actually got English roots, and it can be broken down into these three segments, at-one-ment. So the atonement equals at-one-ment, and it just means uh, or describes a process by which two parties that are separated from one another or two people that are estranged from each other are brought back together into relationship, making them one or at one again. The atonement is the process by which estranged people are brought back together. Now, have you ever tried to explain something to someone, and maybe they weren't an expert in the field, or maybe you were trying to explain it to a child, and so you had to really simplify what you were saying for them to be able to understand it. For instance, when my kids were growing up, and they might ask a question like, uh, Daddy, how does, how does the light turn on? I didn't start by telling them about how a nuclear reactor at a nuclear power plant operates, or how when electricity passes through the, the chemical spray on the, out, on the inside of a CFL bulb that photons are released and, and then we can see visible spectrums of light. I didn't do that. I said, well, you flip this switch and it sends power to the light and the light turns on. That's how I explained it to them. And when we're young, maybe we're young in the faith, just coming to know Jesus, or maybe we're literally young, we're children and we're in Sunday school and someone is describing to us how Jesus' death works or what God has done for us, we might hear something like this. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus died for your sins. That is, of course, true. Jesus died for your sins. But as my kids got older and as they grow up, they want a more more filled explanation than just you turn the power switch on and it comes on. They want to know, how does that work? And so with the atonement, we hear, we learn, Jesus died for our sins. But I don't know about you, for me, I've often had the question, how does that work? How does Jesus do that? How can somebody stand in my place? How does Jesus' death, how does it make any difference for me? How could he take my sin upon himself? How can Jesus die for me? And so maybe to this point in your life as a Christian, you've been pretty comfortable with that explanation. Jesus died for my sins. But there is a depth to what Christ has done that we can understand. And so today I want to talk to you about why Jesus died for your sins and how that works. And to begin, I just want to go over again what Jesus' death looked like and what exactly his suffering Looked like. And so, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read this from the Bible, but I'm going to summarize it for you. Jesus was fully God and fully man. And when he came, he was hated by the Jewish religious establishment because he claimed to be the Son of God. They were also jealous of his popularity with the people. And he called them out in, for their corruption, especially when he went into the temple and he overturned the tables. And he said things like, Tear this temple down, and I will raise it up again in three days. 
Judas was one of his 12 apostles and he betrayed Jesus. He told these religious leaders where they could find Jesus alone when he was separated from the crowds. And after he was arrested, Jesus was unjustly tried and he was taken to the governor, Pontius Pilate, and Pilate agreed to have him crucified, not because Pilate actually thought he'd done anything wrong, but because Pilate was afraid of a riot and what would happen if the situation got out of control, he would be held responsible And so he agreed to have Jesus crucified. First, Pilate had Jesus scourged, which was a Roman punishment in which a person was beaten with leather straps, uh, and, and those leather straps would have shards of bone and pottery embedded in them. And so when they would hit a person's back and the flesh of their rib cage, they would embed themselves, and then they would pull back, and it would expose ribs, and it would rip flesh off of people. And then the Roman soldiers mocked Jesus, dressing him in a purple robe and bowing down before him and, and twisting a crown made out of thorns and placing it on his head head, mocking him, and they called him king of the Jews in this mocking tone. Then Jesus was led outside the city where he was crucified, and crucifixion was a Roman punishment used primarily for insurrectionists or rebels against Rome, and a crossbeam would be carried to the site of the crucifixion, and once there, the Roman soldiers nailed Jesus' hands and then his ankles or his feet to the cross and left him there to hang. Now, crucifixion was designed as a torturous punishment, but it was designed to be a long punishment. It was not supposed to kill people quickly, but to take a long time to die, to shame the person. And it was intended more than just to harm the individual. It was really a message to everybody who saw, this is what happens when you rebel against Rome, when you mess with Rome. And the the Romans had learned how to extend the anguish of crucifixion. For instance, they would bend the individual's knees before nailing them in. Because when a person died from crucifixion, typically they didn't die because of extreme blood loss, though in Jesus' case he had been scourged first, so that was a part of it. Um, But typically, how a person died when they were crucified was asphyxiation. When they were hung by their hands and their feet, their body would sag because they were just hanging like this, and it would close their rib cage, and they wouldn't be able to breathe. And in order to be able to breathe, what they would have to do was they would have to pull themselves up and push on the nails in their ankles and in their wrists and pull themselves up, causing excruciating pain, tearing tendons, but if they wanted to breathe, they had to do that. And so this could go on for days. In fact, many people would hang on the cross for days until finally their strength from dehydration gave out and they were no longer able to pull themselves up and they would die of suffocation. In Jesus' case, he died because of the extreme loss of blood and because the Bible says that he didn't die because people killed him, but that he gave himself up, he gave up his spirit, and he was pierced in his side. In fact, when you read in the Gospels that the Roman soldiers came and they were going to break his legs, they broke the legs of the thieves that were hung next to him, this was the purpose of breaking their legs. If their legs were broken, they'd no longer be able to push themselves up in order to take that next breath and they would die of suffocation. But Jesus, when they arrived at him, was already dead. Now I share this with you just to remind you in case you've forgotten or you've not watched The Passion of the Christ in a long time, this is what we mean when we say that Jesus died. This is the manner in which he died for you. This is what he did for you. And in addition to all of that physical stuff, Jesus was betrayed, he was denied, he was abandoned by his friends and by his disciples, he was mocked as he hung there naked on the cross, the weight of every sin ever committed placed on him, and he bore even the rejection of God and the wrath of God against sin. And when Jesus died, the curtain, the veil that was in the temple that separated the the people from the most holy place where only the high priest could enter once a year on the day of atonement. That veil was torn open as if to say atonement has been made. People are at one with God again through Jesus. And so this morning we're going to explore in a little bit greater detail what Jesus' death accomplished and how it accomplished it you can understand the meaning of the cross. And in order to do that, we're gonna, cover, we're gonna consider several theories of the atonement. Now, when I say theories, what I mean is these are ways that we try to understand 
through the scripture what Jesus accomplished when he died on the cross, and they have been taught by Christian teachers and preachers throughout the millennia. And there is a great assortment of theories that emphasize different facets of what Jesus accomplished when he died on the cross for us. And I think there's one that is primary, that encompasses the rest and holds them together, and I'll point that one out when we get to it, but it's good for us to examine the broad range of what Jesus' death accomplished for us so that we can understand the meaning of the cross. And in order to do that, I'm gonna point out three benefits of Jesus' death, and these benefits are gonna be like containers, or they're gonna house these theories of the atonement to help us to, to understand the categories of what these theories are getting at, or what these ideas from the scripture are getting at. And the first benefit of the cross is revelation. Jesus' death reveals who God is and who we ought to be. The Gospel of John opens with a description of this revelation. It uses the imagery of light to describe Jesus. It says in John 1.9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. These verses refer immediately to the incarnation, that the eternal Son of God became human and he lived among us. And this doctrine is intimately connected with the atonement because if Jesus was going to die, he had to be flesh. God cannot die. And so if God wanted to take the penalty of sin, which is death, on himself, if he wanted to bear that, if he wanted to do that for us through Jesus, Jesus had to become flesh. And by becoming flesh, Jesus spoke our language. I don't mean that he spoke English or Spanish or whatever your native language is. I mean that he presented God to us in a way that we could understand. And the culmination of that revelation was the cross because it was there that God demonstrated his justice for sin and his great love for humanity all at the same time. And we're gonna talk more about God's justice in just a moment, but in the meantime, the apostle Paul captures the heart of this revelation at Romans chapter five, verses six to eight, where he says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows or demonstrates or reveals his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. At the cross, we learn the depths of God's love. It is a love that does not erase the need for justice, but that finds a way to fulfill justice through self-sacrifice. It is a love for his creatures that remains even when his creatures are rebellious and estranged from him. This demonstration that God made led the Apostle John to write in 1 John 4, 8, God is love, and in verse 10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or sacrifice for our sins. In this sacrifice and demonstration of God's love, we learn something about God that humanity had been unable to see previously. The Jews did not see it, though God had given them his law. We did not deduce it from nature, though God has revealed himself there. It is true that the Old Testament frequently refers to God's forgiveness, to his mercy, to his faithfulness, to his love, but the cross reveals these things in, in a way that is orders of magnitude greater than what we could understand from God's law before. Let me see if I can describe it a bit like this. Have you ever gone on a trip? Maybe you went to a national park or to a historic site or you took a trip to Europe and you took a lot of pictures and you get back and you're showing those pictures to family and to friends and you're really excited while you show them the pictures and when you do, you can tell that they're less than impressed. I mean, yeah, they're, they're paying attention, but they're less than impressed with, with your pictures and maybe you find yourself saying something like this, I wish I could take you there and show you because these pictures 
just don't do it justice. Have you ever said something like that? You just, you have to be there to see it. It's incredible. Uh, this picture just doesn't, doesn't convey what I'm, trying to, what I'm trying to tell you it was like. And this is something like what God did for us through the cross. God could say that he is love. He could redeem his people and provide a way of sacrifice so that they could be re- uh, reconciled to him in the wilderness as the Jews followed him out of Egypt. He could give them a new law that taught them how to love him and how to love one another. And they still did not comprehend the depth of his love. But a God who willingly sent his son to die a brutal death on the cross for us, for the son of God, God in the flesh to become man so that he could die on our behalf and face the thing we fear most, the thing that separates us from one another and from God, death. The most unthinkable thing, the thing that we, that we fear most, this reveals a depth to God's love that we will never be able to measure. But now God has shown it to us through his son Jesus. And that is why Paul could pray for believers, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses is knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The atonement, the death of Jesus on our behalf demonstrates a depth to the love of God that we will learn and we will rejoice in forever. And this kind of love not only reveals who God is, but it also teaches us who we should be. God's love shows us who God is so that we can learn who we should be. John put it succinctly when he wrote, we love because he first loved us. But this is not the airy-fairy love of the world that's based on a whim and a feeling. God's love was self-sacrificial and it teaches us that because he loves us like that, we should and we can learn to love others the same way. And this theory of the atonement that we're talking about is sometimes called the moral influence theory. It's the idea that Jesus' death provides us an example of how to confront power and how to confront strength in our world, as well as how to love one another through self-sacrifice. Now, on its own, it doesn't cover all that Jesus has done, but it is a part of what Jesus' cross means for us. Jesus said it this way, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. His death influences how we live in the world. Jesus' life and death provide an example that we should follow. They show us who God is, what he's really like, and what God wants from us. And this can be applied to every area of our lives, and the New Testament helps us see some of the practical ways. For instance, Ephesians 5, 1 to 2, the apostle Paul writes to the church and says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus' death revealed God's love and it shows us how to love one another. And growing in our experience of God's love and showing that kind of self-sacrificial love for others is a lifelong pursuit for disciples. So this theory of the atonement moves us from asking, have I been forgiven, to is God's love evident in how I respond to others? Is God's self-sacrificial love evident in how I treat others? Have I truly come to know God's love in a way that has transformed how I give myself to others? Is my understanding of Christianity so shallow that it has been reduced to a few songs and a message on Sunday mornings? Or am I becoming like Jesus as I am transformed by God's love for me? Jesus' death is a revelation of who God is and who we should be 
And in order to properly understand all that Jesus' death accomplished for us, we have to understand what it, is, what it is meant to show us, that it shows us his love, and it also shows us how to love. The revelation of God's love and how Jesus' life and death redefines strength and power and love for us is a wonderful truth, but it's insufficient to explain the cross and all that God accomplished for us through it. If the cross is just an example of love, surely God could have found a less violent way of showing us his love. Yes, Jesus confronted our sinful human ways of dealing with one another when he died, but if all Jesus did was leave us an example, doesn't that mean that salvation is really as much our work as it is God's work? And this is where we come to what I believe is the heart of the atonement and the theory which provides the structure or the foundation for the others. Sometimes it's referred to as the penal substitution theory. And I know that that sounds strange and complicated, but it's really pretty simple. Penal just relates to a penalty. So this theory emphasizes the scriptures that teach that Jesus died for our penalty. He was the substitute for our penalty, removing our sin, taking the penalty of that sin in the form of God's wrath against sin. And the truth that Jesus removes our sin is referred to by the word expiation. This is a word that means that our sin is removed. And the truth that God's wrath is satisfied, uh, God's wrath against sin is satisfied by Jesus' sacrifice is called propitiation. God's wrath against sin satisfied by Jesus' death. And these ideas can be seen very well in the Old Testament sacrificial system, especially on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was an annual feast and sacrifice at which the high priest offered two goats to make the people of God at one with him again, to cleanse the tabernacle and to cleanse God's people since God's holy presence dwelled among them. And listen to how the two goats were used. It says, Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, that is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, that's the veil that was torn when Jesus died, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat on the altar, and in front of the mercy seat, that's the Ark of the Covenant. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions or sins, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. So the, fir the first goat was sacrificed in the tabernacle, but the second goat had a different role. It says, and Aaron shall lay both his hands, Aaron is the high priest, shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities to, on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. So the first goat appeased God's holiness because of the people's uncleanness and the second goat carried away their sins. And Jesus' death on the cross, which happened outside the walls of Jerusalem or outside the camp, just as this goat was sent outside the camp, and therefore he died there, that happened so that he could represent both of these goats and what they do. Rather, the goats represented what Jesus was going to do. A sacrifice was needed to make God's people right with God and to carry away our sins, and Jesus' death accomplished both. But why did Jesus have to die? And maybe, maybe more importantly, and if you're not a believer in Jesus, maybe you've thought about this as people have told you Jesus died for you, and you thought, how could someone else die for me? How could Jesus' death count for me. And there's so much that could be said here, so we're going to have to summarize it 
And thankfully, the Apostle Paul does this at Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Remember, that means he, he was a sacrifice that appeases God's wrath and a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance or patience or mercy, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul spells out the problem for us very clearly. We have all sinned. We all fall short of God's glory. God's intentions for us and relationship with us have been ruined by our sin. And what is sin? Sin is a failure to love God and to love people as God intended us. And I don't mean that we we don't have nice feelings toward other people or that we don't love people who love us. Rather, I mean that we fail to apply the kind of love that Jesus demonstrated through his self-sacrificial death on the cross. And that failure starts because we fail to love or even to acknowledge God. In fact, Romans 1, 18 to 21 says this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that he have been made. So they are without excuse For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. God is angry at sin. And we have to be careful how we express this because God is not angry like we often think of anger or like we often get angry. He's not quick-tempered and his anger is not just a defense mechanism as ours so often turns out to be. The Bible affirms over and over again that God is merciful. He's slow to anger. He abounds in steadfast love. He is angry, though, because having given us everything necessary for eternal life and relationship with him, we persistently reject him, rebelling against him, and choosing to ignore him. And I don't mean you in particular. I mean this is what people do when they're apart from God, in their sin, stuck in their sin. We hurt one another, and we justify ourselves in our pride. And this passage from Romans even highlights God's mercy. He was patient. He passed over former sins, not punishing everyone as they deserve to be punished. But now, through Jesus, he satisfied his wrath against sin. Why did God's wrath have to be satisfied? Couldn't he just say, oh, forget about it. I forgive you. Because he needed to demonstrate his righteousness. He's not a pushover. He's not a lazy parent who refuses to correct his children and so they grow up to be selfish and self-absorbed. Neither is he like a judge who thinking himself merciful overlooks how his mercy towards someone who has committed a crime or an offense or an injustice may actually then turn into an injustice to the person who was that other person's victim. You understand what I mean? That if God overlooks our sin, then he also says to those whom we've sinned against, oh, it's no big deal. But it is a big deal. And we know it's a big deal because when we're sinned against, we make a big deal out of it, don't we? We're mad. We want justice to be done, especially if it hurts. And it usually does hurt when someone sins against us. And we want justice to be done. What's more, God is glorious, and he will not have his glory diminished and ultimately allow his name to be tarnished by people who know he's there because of how he's revealed himself, but choose to act as if he is not. So here, in God, we find these two qualities at work. God is love, and God is righteous, or he is just. How could God love us sinners and demonstrate his righteousness against sin? 
He did it through Jesus. Because Jesus was God in the flesh, he was perfect and perfectly satisfied the requirements of God's law. And when he died, he died for us. He did not die for his own sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Our guilt and our sin is transferred to Jesus, and he died for it, satisfying the wrath of God against sin. But again, we come to this question, how could Jesus die for my sin? How does that transfer take place? How can it be fair for someone else to pay what I owe? Of course, if we're talking economically, in terms of a a debt of money that you owe someone, we can understand it like that. If I owe someone money and you step in to pay that money for me, the person who I owe, the lender, he doesn't care who pays it, right? He just wants his money. So we can understand something of what Jesus has done in that way. He stepped in to pay our debt to God. But of course we know intrinsically, because we've been sinned against and because others have sinned against us, that sin is not exactly like a financial debt, is it? It's a moral debt. We owe something, and that debt is tied to me. It can't be removed from me. It's personal. I have sinned. If there is a murderer, we would not think it just that someone stepped in at court and said, I'll take his punishment. Why? Because he was the murderer, and he should be punished for his sin, and because we do not want him to keep committing that sin against others. So how, then, can my moral obligation, because I've sinned, because I've failed to love, because I've gossiped, because I've complained, because I've been prideful. How can that be transferred from me to Jesus? I can't explain all the intricacies of how it worked, but the Bible does give us some understanding about how we should think about this. Romans 3, 21 to 26 says, as we read earlier, that justification and redemption are a gift of God, but that they are received by faith. Now, when Paul talks about faith, he is not speaking merely about believing that something happened, like you believe that George Washington crossed the Delaware or something like that. That's not what he means by faith exactly. Yes, you have to believe that something took place, but what Paul is saying, he's, he's using faith as a term of relationship, and even a relationship stronger than we would think of, of like having a conversation in the lobby after church. It could be translated as something like, trust, or maybe even partnership. And when we trust Jesus, we're not simply saying that we believe he did something for us, but that in a spiritual sense, we are joined with him in what he did. Paul expresses this beautifully. At Galatians 2.20, he says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith or trust or because I've been joined together in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Because Jesus was not just an ordinary man but was indeed fully the Son of God. When you put your faith in him, you are not just saying, oh, he paid an economic debt. You're saying, I am joined with him. And when Jesus died, I died, and when Jesus rose from the dead, I rose from the dead, and I don't live like I once lived anymore. I now live by faith in Jesus. He lives in me, he walks in me, he is in me. Faith is not merely believing that Jesus died and rose again, but that you've died and risen with him. You're a new creation. Old things have passed away, new things have come. You're not who you once were. You're no longer separated from God, but you've been brought near in a way that that goes beyond saying that we, we might say, well, this family was reconciled, yes, but when God talks about reconciliation, what he means is that by faith in Jesus, he lives in you. That's how close it is. And that because of that relationship, there is this transfer that takes place so that Jesus took what you deserved and you get Jesus' righteousness, not because it happened in the past, but because you're walking in Jesus in the present. The sin that meant God's wrath rested on you and kept you alienated from the Father has been paid for. It's been removed from you. And the danger here 
of emphasizing the penal substitutionary theory of the atonement is that sometimes when people do this, they tend to cheapen God's grace. When they hear that they're justified apart from their own works by faith through grace, that Jesus took the penalty of their sin and it's not through their works, they tend to make religion a recital of what God did for them but fail to apply it in their lives. But that emphasis that we have on knowing Jesus died for me and I now live in him, it doesn't have to lead us there. In fact, it should lead us to say with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ and yet I live. Not I, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Let me ask you, can you say that you live by faith? Not asking you if you have faith or if you believe in Jesus, but do you live by faith in Christ? Has faith in Christ so transformed your life that you can say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me? Or has your faith become merely a religious expression of what you know Jesus did and what you want him to do for you so that your faith is not vibrant, doesn't represent the living Christ in you? Is your faith the kind of faith that someone who knows you and knows your life can see that you've been transformed because you are now in Christ? This is how an emphasis on Jesus' atonement as reconciliation should cause us to live. Revelation, reconciliation, these are both benefits of the atonement. The final benefit we'll consider is redemption. The the penalty has been paid, a ransom has been paid, and you've been freed from sin and Satan. And the theory of the atonement that is emphasized here is commonly called Christus Victor, or Jesus has won. And one expression of this is called the ransom theory. It's the belief that when Jesus died, a payment was made to the devil that that meant he had freed people from his power, but that God tricked Satan because Satan didn't realize who Jesus was and that death could not hold him because Jesus was fulfilling a law greater and older than the law of sin and death. He was fulfilling the law of love. If you've ever read C.S. Lewis's book, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or you've ever watched that movie? How many of you ever read that book or watched one of the the movies that have been made about that? This is expressed in that book. And in that book, a young man named Edmund betrays his brothers and sisters. He defects to the evil character who represents Satan called the White Witch, and she plans to kill him. But Aslan, the lion who represents Jesus, He steps in, he had created Narnia, this land that they were in, and he offers to take Edmund's place. And the witch, of course, thinks that she's getting a great deal here because if Aslan is dead, there will be no one to challenge her power and protect Narnia. So Aslan goes to her and she shames him and then she slaughters him on the stone table, representing the law that gave her the right to Edmund, the traitor's blood. But after she leaves, the table is split in two because the The law is fulfilled, but the older law, or what the book calls the deeper magic, she didn't know about this, and it is also fulfilled, and as a result, Aslan is resurrected. Now, this makes for a great children's story. It's fantastic and stirring image of self-sacrifice, but I think it makes for a pretty poor understanding of the atonement, because while the Bible does say that Satan holds the power of death and that he is the prince of the power of the air, nowhere does it say that he has any rights, especially as it relates to God. God owes him nothing. And the law of the Old Testament was not an agreement between God and the devil that if people don't keep this, then you have control over their lives, but it was an agreement between God and people. And when the Bible talks about sin, the emphasis is inevitably on a trust broken between God and humanity, not that because you've sinned, Satan now owns you. And I think this theory tends to afford Satan more power and more sway than the scripture actually does. Nevertheless, the Christus Victor theory does get an important biblical emphasis right. Jesus has overcome sin and Satan. 
Colossians 2, 13 to 15 says this, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Rulers and authorities does not just refer to the rulers of, of Israel or, or governors or, or government leaders. It refers to spiritual rulers and authorities. And because Jesus removed sin's power over us by appeasing God's wrath and he's reconciled us to God through his death on the cross, he also renders Satan's power in our lives void. Satan has no more power because if we are free from sin, what can Satan do? Believers are no longer under the power of Satan. And this is something the New Testament tells us over and over again. The rulers of this world tried to shame Jesus, but he is alive again and he is unashamed. And Satan may have thought that he had hindered God's plan when he incited Judas to betray Jesus, but all he could do was play into God's purposes. And this gives believers the assurance that we are not merely at the whims of government rulers or powers that may often be incited and inspired by spiritual forces and rulers of this dark world. Nothing can separate us from God's love in Jesus. Jesus has won. And this should cause believers to walk in confidence. Satan can tempt. He can tempt us to despair. He can accuse of sin in our past. He may be permitted to bring opposition against us, but he has been overcome. He is, for the Christian, a defeated foe. Yes, he's like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, but Christ has given us authority and a place, his cross and his resurrection, where we stand and where we resist him. And this benefit of the atonement teaches us that we should walk in freedom over sin and Satan. Satan cannot make us do anything, including live in a kind of fear that causes us to disobey God. Rather, the scripture tells us this, we conquer him by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony, Revelation 12, 11. Neither should we live in fear of the world and its powers. He has revealed his love and his power. We should not live as if we are oppressed. We should not talk and act as if we are slaves. We have been redeemed. We're no longer slaves to fear, death, sin, and Satan. And perhaps for you this means that you need to take that next step of faith that God has been calling you to take, but you've been too afraid to take it. You've been hesitant to talk to someone about your faith. You've been hesitant to join a ministry for fear that you don't have the gifts that it takes or that you don't have the right kind of personality. But the scripture says this, that God has led captive a host, including sin and Satan, and that he has given gifts to us as his people so that we can overcome. And maybe God has been calling you to a place of ministry and you've been saying, well, I can't, I don't want to do that. I don't, I don't have what it takes. Listen, the doctrine of the atonement that is revealed in this emphasis on Jesus' victory is this. You should not live in a place of fear. Maybe he's even been calling you to, to some kind of full-time ministry to expand what God is doing in your life and you've been afraid to do that. Or he's been calling you to sacrificial giving and you say, well, I don't know. What if this happens? Or, or what if the economy turns or whatever? And, and what this theory, what this emphasis of the atonement teaches us is this, that we should not be people who live in constant fear of the what-ifs of life, but should live and say, Jesus has overcome and where the conqueror leads, I'm gonna follow him because I am no longer a slave to the fear that once held me captive. I have been redeemed, set free, ransomed from that. The penalty of my sin paid, I'm forgiven, and Jesus is now leading me in a new life of victory. Are you walking in victory over sin 
and fear. Dave, you can go ahead and come. I know that we've covered a lot of ground today, and there's so much more that Jesus has done, that his word reveals, was accomplished on the cross that we could talk about, and we're going to talk more about that. Pastor Franco is going to preach again on the atonement in a couple of weeks. I encourage you to, to be here so that you can hear that, and it's important that we would dig deeply in our faith, especially on the central theme of Jesus' death on our behalf. It's true. Jesus died for your sin. But doesn't it help to know what that means and how God has accomplished it? That it means more than, yeah, one day, if I'm, if I'm lucky, as some Christians have this kind of weak faith, one day maybe I'll get to go to heaven. But it means that there's freedom in your life right now. There's victory over sin in your life right now that you stand in, in Jesus and you no longer walk in your flesh, but you're walking in the, in the power of Jesus who loved you and gave himself for you. Doesn't it help to know that God has revealed himself and there's a depth to his love that as you meditate on the cross and learn to apply it in your life, goes deeper and deeper and you'll never exhaust it. This is what the atonement teaches us and we need to dig deeply into it. Maybe in your life you've not experienced these benefits and. Perhaps it's because you've never confessed that Jesus is your Lord, or maybe you were in a church service like this at one point, and somebody asked you to raise a hand, or they, they asked you to, to, to say a prayer, and you did it, but you didn't have any idea what was really going on, and for you it was just kind of, yeah, I guess I believe something. But you didn't really know what Jesus had done for you. You didn't know that he died because you were stuck and a slave in your sin because you had denied God and you had run from him. And Jesus took the penalty of God's wrath against you and died so that you could no longer live in that sin, but you could live in Jesus and you could be remade a new creation. Today, if you don't have a relationship with God and Jesus, I invite you to have that kind of faith in him. It's the faith we talked about this morning. It's not a faith that says, I, I, I guess I believe that something happened. It's a faith that says, I've been crucified with Christ and yet I live. Not I, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Would you close your eyes for just a moment if you don't have that kind of relationship with God through Jesus? You've never given your life to him and understood that Jesus took your penalty and that now you get to have his righteousness. You've never believed in him for that kind of cleansing of your sin and, and renewal of your life. Today is the day that you can do that. And I wanna pray with you in that regard. And it's not the words of this prayer. It's not because I'm gonna ask you to raise your hand in just a moment. It's not those things that save you. Jesus saves you when you actually put your faith in him, when you trust him with your life and you say, Jesus, my life is not my own. I've done my life my way and I've denied you in doing that. But today I recognize that I need life that only comes from you. You've shown me that you are the only way to have forgiveness and to have real life. And today I want that real life. I want to know you in a way that I've not known you before. I want to have my sins forgiven and I want to be renewed in your life. If that's you, you don't have that relationship with God through Jesus. I'm going to ask you if you do this, just do this simple but bold thing. Would you just lift up your hands so that I can pray with you? Is there anybody like that? You don't have that relationship with God through Jesus. You did not understand what Jesus did for you when he died on the cross. You've never confessed faith in him. I'm going to wait for just a moment. That's you. Don't hesitate and don't wait. Don't worry about what somebody else is doing. Today, if God has spoken into your life through his word, Will you respond and will you believe in Jesus? Will you put your faith in him? Will you trust him? Is there anybody like that? You want to commit that, your life to Christ today? You want to believe in him? If you're online, you're joining us there and you'd like to respond, you can text the word HOPE to 413-300-6061 and we'll get uh, responding to you via text. But is there anybody else here? Thank you. Is there anybody else who wants to respond this morning? I want to pray for you. We're going to pray this this morning, and it's not the words of this prayer as I formulated that save you, it's Jesus. And so as I pray, you make this prayer your own, and you trust Jesus with your life today. Heavenly Father, today I've heard the word of your gospel, the good news about what Jesus did for me, and I believe it. Lord, I know that I've sinned against you, and I know that the penalty of that sin is death. And I thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die for my sin. 
Today I understand that as I put my faith in him, that I die with him. I'm dying, Lord, to the old way of life, to my sinful self. And I'm not dying in my power, I'm dying in Christ. And I understand today and believe that just as you raised Jesus from the dead, that you're giving new life to me today. Lord, from this point forward, I want to be able to say it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I thank you that you forgive my sin. I thank you that today you're giving me victory over sin. And I thank you that you are giving me new life in Christ. May I walk by faith in Christ from now on in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, if you raised your hand or you wish that you would have, there will be some prayer partners that will be at the front of the sanctuary at the end of the service. Would you please come and pray with one? Find one. We have a book we'd like to give to you to say, uh, to help you to understand what to do next. Congregation, would you stand with me? And we're going to close in this way. We've asked some particular questions this morning. I think we've got a few to summarize and put on the screen if we could that help to kind of summarize what it is that these theories of the atonement or these, these benefits of Jesus' death mean for us and the kinds of questions that they should cause us to ask regarding the revelation of God's love in our lives. We ask this, does the love that God has it demonstrated to my life, is that reflected through me? Do I love others sacrificially like God has demonstrated through Jesus? Regarding reconciliation, we can ask ourselves this question, has faith in Christ so transformed my life that I can say it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me? And concerning the benefit of the atonement, which is expressed in Jesus' victory over sin and our redemption, we can ask ourselves this, am I living a life in which I'm victorious over sin and Satan and fear so that I'm representing God as I should? Today, as we prepare to close, I'm gonna close in prayer, but there will be some deacons and deaconesses here that are gonna be available to pray for the sick. There will also be some prayer partners at the front. And if there's a way that you wanna to respond this morning and you wanna to respond to God's word and you just like to pray with somebody and, and say, I wanna walk a life of faith. I wanna live the faith that we talked about this morning. I wanna live that transformed life. And you just like somebody to pray with you about that. You can come forward and we would be happy to pray with you about how to live that life of faith and to apply that in your life. But for all of us this morning, knowing the depth of what Jesus has done, would you join me now? Would you just lift up your hands and would you give thanks to God for what he's done in Jesus? Lord, we bless your name and we thank you for what you've done. Lord, we thank you for how you've revealed your love. We thank you for how you've overcome sin. We thank you for how the wrath of God against sin has been satisfied in Jesus and we're justified, made right and holy in you. And we thank you, Lord, for everything that you've done. May we be a church who not only knows what you've done, but is walking in that life that we would be able to say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And that would not be a theory and those would not be merely words, but that it would be expressed in our love, in our actions, in our attitudes, in our choices every single day. Lord, we thank you for what you've done. We pray for those, God, here who are stuck in their sin and who are stuck in a battle against the enemy and they're wondering, can I be free? Today, God, I ask that you would deliver them through the power of Christ who has delivered us from the power of sin and Satan. I ask, God, that they would repent and be made free, redeemed in Jesus' name. I pray that those who are struggling with fear would know the confidence of Jesus living and walking in them. I pray that those who are struggling with depression and anxiety would know the freedom of what God has done for them through Jesus. I pray that those who have felt that heaviness of a guilty conscience would know the freedom of the sons and daughters of God because their past has been taken care of. Jesus was crucified outside the city walls and have care, has carried their sin there, and it is no more. And I pray that they would know the freedom of a conscience made, made clean in Jesus. Lord, we thank you for everything that you've done for us through your son Jesus, for his death on our behalf. And we thank you that we now walk in the liberty of the sons and daughters of God. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray and we believe. Amen.
deacons and deaconesses, prayer partners, if you'd come forward. If you have a need in your body that you'd like us to pray for, pastors and deaconesses and deacons will be here. If you'd like to respond to the word of God today, come find a prayer partner to pray with. Otherwise, we will see you again on Wednesday evening for our prayer meeting. Until then, go in God's grace and in his peace.